attentive. The reading? Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of our fathers, for you are just in all you have done. Wisdom. The reading is from St. Paul's letter to Titus. Let us be attentive. Titus, my son, the saying is sure. I desire you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to apply themselves to good deeds. These are excellent and profitable to men. But avoid stupid controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels over the law, for they are unprofitable and futile. As for a man who is factious, after admonishing him once or twice, knowing that such a person is perverted and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychikos to you, do your best to come to be at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to apply themselves to good deeds so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. All those who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Listen to the Holy Gospel. Peace be with all. The reading. The reading is from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Let us be attentive. The Lord said this parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell among the path and was trodden underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew with it and choked it, and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And when his disciples asked him, what was this parable meant? He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, 
hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bring forth good fruit with patience. And he said these things, he cried out, who has ears to hear, let him hear. Be with you who proclaim the gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Matter is sanctified. Brothers and sisters, councils or synods are gatherings of all bishops, either in a region that is small, or in a country, or all the bishops of the church. These gatherings are for various needs of the church. Sometimes they're simple pastoral needs. But occasionally, the church needs to gather bishops for greater needs. Such was the case, especially in the early times of Christianity. Ecumenical councils or ecumenical synods are gatherings of bishops of the entire Christian church. And they primarily address matters of doctrine. And the Orthodox Church holds seven such ecumenical councils as universal, having proclaimed and given us preciseness for our doctrine and clear guidance as to our life in Christ, our life in the church, our life with one another. There were many other such councils, but not all of them were ecumenical, as we define and understand them. In that first thousand years of Christianity, Christianity was largely united. Yes, there were many struggles, but altogether, the church recognizes that first thousand years of having maintained a steadfastness of faith, which was guided by these gatherings of bishops, ecumenical councils. The seventh one, took place in the year 787 A.D. in the city of Nicaea. Nicaea was a major center of learning and a major center for the church as well, reason for which it was actually a second time that the church gathered for a council such as this in that city. The Seventh Ecumenical Council addressed primarily the issue of the veneration of icons. There were other issues as well. In fact, just last night, I, uh, at Vespers, we learned in one of the hymns something about cementing 
cementing uh, Sunday as the central day of, re of worship for Christians in the week. It's something I had forgotten. Suffice it to say that councils gather to deal with many different issues, but typically for the ecumenical councils, there was one major trial, one major challenge that the church had to deal with. Iconography, imagery in the church was the occasion for the seventh. This is the commemoration that we have on this Sunday. This Sunday, particular Sunday in October, is always dedicated to the fathers of this Seventh Ecumenical Council. And at that period of time in the 8th century, and a little bit before, a little bit after, into the 9th century, they were dealing with two groups in the church. The iconoclasts, who were those who destroyed icons and did not want to have imagery in their homes and in their churches, and the iconojewels, those who venerated icons, who maintained the faith as they had received it from the apostles. In the year 726, Leo III began very, very systematic attacks on icons and very clearly pursued the erasing of iconography from Christian churches and even destroying them in other institutions, strongly encouraging and even persecuting people who had them in their homes. The people in their homes did not give that up, even though many of the bishops of the time accepted that and unfortunately pushed it. Now, we always have to pay attention to historical context, understanding how some of these attacks on the church come about. Our lives are not a perfect continuum where it's only my thoughts and my decisions that guide my life. No, frankly, that itself would be scary to just have my own thoughts guide my lives, my life. But our lives are influenced greatly by what happens around us. Every stranger we encounter and particularly people with whom we work closely, starting with our families, going off to our places of employment or schools, our neighborhoods, all of these locations, all of these spaces where we spend our time and interact with people come at us with teaching and influence. Lots of it is good. Lots of it is useful. And we should be open to listening to them. But oftentimes, we're also influenced in negative ways, in ways that is not useful for us, and certainly not for our life in Christ. That period of time, the Christian world, particularly in the Middle East, 
was fraught with the influence of Islam. We look at this situation and all of a sudden, if we pay attention only to Christian history, we might believe that all of a sudden in the year 726, this guy, Leo, decides to remove icons from the church. But that didn't come about in a void. In the year 723, the Muslim Caliph Yazid II ordered the removal of all iconography and all imagery from his territory. Even in their homes, people were not allowed to have any imagery that was for religious purposes. This affected the Christians primarily, but not only the Christians, because other faiths included imagery. Frankly, imagery is present even in the old Judaic traditions. This respective caliph took issue not only with imagery, but he took issue even as it stated, it was interesting, he had issues with the mixing of Christians and Jews. He had issues with the mixing of Christians and Muslims and of Jews and Muslims, these three being the three primary religious groups in his area. More importantly, he took issue with church's teaching. He took issue with learning. Now, I want to caution you against somehow believing that this must be something that Islam teaches. That is not true. Lots of Islamic scholars throughout history, particularly in those times, provided greatly with their wisdom to the knowledge base of the world, particularly in the area of mathematics and astronomy. So this was not necessarily a universal Muslim pursuit, but it was a pursuit in that area. And it was a decision clearly given and recorded in history by Yazid II. Is it a surprise then that some bishop would arise and say, remove the icons from the churches when you are forced to do so? Perhaps not. But even outside of that, the church, we have to admit, was troubled within herself, within its own membership by this discussion for that influence would have taken root, particularly over periods of decades. Now, when we look at iconography today, we are generally beautifully impressed. They show to us something that we call art. But we have to understand that this was not just art. The great majority of people could not read, would not even consider the pursuit of learning how to read. They did not have necessarily a need for reading. 
Iconography was more than just beautifying churches or having an image to kneel before or to venerate. Iconography was learning. Iconography was an open book to all those who could not read. Here's another reason why someone who did not want people to learn because he felt that they needed to simply obey for the jobs they are given. You see how history is shaped in ways that we often miss out on. It's also interesting that in that very area, in Damascus, an area at that point in time dominated by Islam, St. John of Damascus arises. St. John of Damascus, the Holy Father, who's a luminary of the church, a luminary for us today for many, many different contributions to the church, particularly in music and in theology about iconography. Here's what he says. Concerning the charge of idolatry, icons are not idols but symbols. Therefore, when an Orthodox venerates an icon, he is not guilty of idolatry. He is not worshiping the symbol, but merely venerating it. Such veneration is not directed toward wood or paint or stone, but toward the person depicted. Therefore, relative honor is shown to material objects, but worship is due to God alone. Christians are not idolaters. We do not worship the icons. We do not worship any material object. We do not worship any human being. We worship God, but we see God blessed and sanctified through everything that is in the world, especially the creation of his own hands. And the first image, the first icon in the world that shows us Jesus Christ, that shows us God as creator, is human beings. Every human being is an icon. And we venerate each other. We embrace each other with a kiss. For we show veneration and love to one another. But we are not the only creation of God's hands. Everything around us is God's creation, and matter is all sanctified. Thankfully, a beautiful holy mother of the church, the Empress Theodora, restored icons, and she is celebrated for it even today. The first Sunday of Great Lent, everyone knows about the beautiful procession with icons. That's what we celebrate. The triumph that the teaching of Theodora and the faithful members of the church 
and the faithful teachers of the church restored. Icons, brothers and sisters, are not just art, and the restoration is not just to preserve something that some people considered beautiful. Icons are not just a tool for education either. It's not just a tool for learning at a time when most people did not read. Icons, brothers and sisters, are the way by which we show that all matter is holy, that all matter becomes sanctified because God became man. Because God became flesh and bone. Because God lived as flesh and bone and died just like you and I. St. John of Damascus again says, icons are necessary and essential because they protect the full and proper doctrine of the incarnation. While God cannot be represented in his eternal nature, he can be depicted simply because he became human and took flesh. Of him who took a material body, material images can be made. In so taking a material body, God proved that matter can be redeemed. He deified matter, making it spirit-bearing. And so if flesh can be a medium for the spirit, so can wood or paint, although in a different fashion. I found this beautiful, brothers and sisters. And of course, I had read this numerous times before. And in preparing earlier this week, I found myself moved to emotions of tears reading this teaching from St. John of Damascus. And once again, it's not, I don't even know how many times I've read it before. It just became so real to me. It just became so, I felt like I could touch it, the paper that he wrote on. I felt like I was sitting next to him. Because we interact with matter so powerfully every single day. We are dependent on so many material things and we work to bring sanctification to them. And we work, we strive, we, we push ourselves to bring meaning to that which we make with our own hands. Any person complaining to me about veneration for icons needs to explain to me the following. Needs to explain to me why they wash their cars and take good care of their nice cars. Why we put so much attention and care and love for our homes and for our furniture and for some china that sits in a cabinet and we never use it. We put value on those material things. Those have meaning to us. Have you ever seen big, strong athletes 
weeping like babies and kissing a trophy after they've won a competition of sorts? Have you ever seen that? Have you ever done it? We see it on TV all the time. I've done it. Many of you probably have also. Do you know how many people pay money, big money, and consider it an amazing once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to touch and take a picture with the Stanley Cup or the World Cup or the Heisman Trophy? That's become like a religion. I'm sure that as I point this out, many of you would expect me to condemn that action, that type of action. And yes, by comparison to life and relationship with God, this adoration for sports trophies is minuscule and it must be diminished in us. But even that has value. The reason why an athlete, a soccer player, weeps and embraces the trophy of the World Cup is because, together with his teammates and his coaches, they have worked for four years to get there, trying to qualify by competing. 192 countries compete for the World Cup. Of course, that's a lot of work. Of course, it takes a great deal of effort. Of course, we are going to place value on an object that marks that accomplishment. But if we place that kind of value on a sports accomplishment, how much more would our hearts open up to something that opens up a window into heaven for you and I. I'll close here, stating once more that icons are not just a matter of beauty or preference. Rather, icons are a matter of true meaning of Christian redemption and the salvation of the entire material universe. Icons ought to adorn our lives as they did throughout all Christian centuries. Amen.